Hey everybody, I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest at least, and today is episode 100, so we're doing something special, talking to the man behind the host, the creator of the creator of The Best Little Horror House in Philly, Papa Hef himself, welcome dad, how's it going? Good afternoon, George, I am thrilled to be here. Well, of course, we are very excited to have you on as well, Uh, as I've mentioned many, many times, even if it wasn't always a active sharing of horror movies, there was a, a huge influence on my love of horror now that came directly from you. And so we're going to get all into that, where it came from for you as well. Um, but first, I wanted to talk about, I was thinking about this influence that you've had on me. Mm-hmm. And even before the Stephen King stuff, I think that it really started with Weird New Jersey. You know, there was always the magazines and everything. You had the subscription to Weird New Jersey and this love of the paranormal that you had. Um, I do think it's a little ironic that you're so into, like, ghosts and stuff. You went on ghost tours and that's so, like, just not really my bag. But it is – I still find it very interesting to read about. And I think that Weird New Jersey was a huge instigator of that. And so I I would love to hear about where you discovered Weird New Jersey, if you remember, what you like about – sort of these little urban legend kind of things and that that sort of thing. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I sort of stumbled upon Weird New Jersey one day in, in the Barnes & Noble in the bookstore. And I've always had sort of a, a love of abandoned and decrepit-looking things and uh, buildings that are sort of falling down. You know, interestingly, I guess it sort of ties into the movie with Arnie in the car. Right. Um, but it, uh, you know, it's always been sort of a fascination and, and ghosts and sort of unexplainable things that are are out there, you know, things that people can't quite explain. And, and one of the things in Weird New Jersey um, that I have actually done in Franklin Lakes is the Ewing Avenue exit, uh, where supposedly if you pull down there and you put your car in neutral, you will roll back up the hill. Uh, and I have tried that and it was not successful for me, but <laughs> I still, uh, I still thought that it was fascinating to do. And, you know, something that was, that was sort of local, sure. just ghosts and, and haunted things in general. You know, I've, I've always been a, uh, a big fan of the Titanic and sort of that kind of unexplainable loss and seeing the pictures, you know, for the longest time when I was growing up, you know, nobody knew where it was ever, where it ever was. Right. Uh, now, you know, now that it's been found, you know, I remember it being such a huge thing uh, and seeing actual pictures of it on the bottom of the ocean and, and just being fascinated with it all over again. Big ups to James Cameron for that. There you go. <laughs> and so uh, I think it's just that kind of unexplainable thing. And, and even down by you with Eastern State Penitentiary. Right. We've done a couple of tours through there. Yeah, there's a fun picture of, of me in the in like the costume right. <laughs> from as a kid there. You know, it's always been, you know, we, we brought you and your brother along, you know, whenever we've done this kind of stuff. And, and I guess it sort of wore off on you after a little while. <laughs> <laughs> How did that transition into a love of horror specifically? Well, it actually was a fear of horror for a long time <laughs> because, you know, grandma and grandpa have the house on Elm Street. Right. <laughs> so I was petrified when Nightmare on Elm Street came out because, you know, oh, my God, could this be, you know, their house? And- mm-hmm. it all, I mean, honestly, the house looks kind of similar, too. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's a legitimate fear. <laughs> right. 
And, and I, I absolutely refused to go and see those movies. And finally, I decided that I just had to suck it up and, and go and do it. Uh, and I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 1 and kind of from there on it was it was downhill from there so <laughs> so let's talk about Stephen King I've mentioned him many times on the show specifically the wall downstairs the wall of Stephen King exactly mm. covered from top to bottom in King do you remember your first exposure to Stephen King how you got into him I've always I've always loved reading his stuff I think because it was uh, so addicting and it was hard to find the end of the chapter to put it down because you were so enthralled with what happened <laughs> that you just wanted to keep going through it so you know there, there are very few authors that I have found that that actually will hold me like that so uh, I think that's where I sort of gravitated and, and he was scary without being too scary right and you rarely saw something in a Stephen King book that was, and then he hacked him up into one inch square pieces and fed him to the alligator. <laughs> you know, it was described, as, you know, something that was happening, but sort of in broad brush strokes. Mm -hmm. you know, Let your imagination do the work. Exactly. Which is often more horrifying. <laughs> exactly. Than exactly. If, than if it's shown on a screen. What would you say is your favorite Stephen King book? And does the adaptation of that book, if it exists, uh, also line up as your favorite. I, you know, I really like them. I don't know that it, it's kind of like asking which one of your kids is the favorite. Yeah, I might make you do that too. <laughs> <laughs> On the record. <laughs> no, don't do that. Um, <laughs> so I don't know that I have a favorite Stephen King book. I like them all. I've, I've seen, you know, all the movies that were out, you know, Carrie and Christine and Cujo and, and a lot of C's I'm just realizing there. Sell. Uh, right. The, the the stand when that was out I, I watched that miniseries on TV I you know I sort of enjoyed it all we saw we saw the play of Carrie uh, I remember in New York it was fun it was a musical which I thought was a great time you know which seems kind of hard to imagine for a horror play but you know <laughs> to say how much fun you had but yeah I think I, I kind of I don't know that I have a favorite in general wow wow. All right, I'll let you. I'll let you take the the easy way out. Way to there. dodge that one. Yeah, um, I would say that my favorite King adaptation, at the very least, um, beyond Christine, which I'm going to take off the table because that is, of course, the best horror movie ever made. Um, but I really love The Mist as well. I think that that is a really fun one. It's uh, a grim, grim movie, but it's got a lot of the like '50s flair as well that this has. In terms of um, the way that it's handled, I think that Frank Darabont, who directed it, really understands Stephen King really well. He's the guy who also did Shawshank mm -hmm. um, and I think other stuff as well. Maybe Apt People was him as well. But regardless, uh, The Mist is really great. And especially if you can get the black and white version, I think it does a lot to help uh, smooth out some of the CGI and create that sort of B-movie uh, feeling that it's definitely going for. I will make a note of that. So the uh, what uh, beyond Stephen King, what would you say is your favorite subgenre of horror movies? Is it that kind of supernatural ghost stuff, or uh, is there something more specific that maybe draws your attention? I don't know. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I know that uh, a lot of your your friends and and the movies that you've done have been the slasher kind of movies, and and yeah. that's not necessarily my forte. You know, Freddy aside. Well, he's he's kind of an interesting crossover between supernatural and uh and slasher and slasher which yeah. is a which is cool because i did enjoy all the freddy movies um but i think that the supernatural is is much more my my speed the mm -hmm. 
you know, poltergeist and, and things like that, where there is sort of almost an occult undertone to it. Mm-hmm. And again, things where uh, your imagination is almost your own worst enemy in a lot of it. Right. I'm curious if you've ever explored any of the like J-horror Japanese stuff that came over because it was so like ghost forward. There is a lot of emphasis on paranormal in the stuff that came over to America. Um, so I'm just curious if you ever checked any of that out. And if not, you should consider it. Uh, I, I will look into it. My, uh, my increased horror movie viewing has only been recent. Uh, <laughs> I believe due mostly to a particular podcast that I've been listening to. Uh, <laughs> doesn't ring any bells. I can't I, possibly I, I imagine. I can't imagine what it could be. But uh, no, I have not explored that but I will consider it if, uh, if one good one comes up on the podcast. All right. Well, I'll keep that in mind. And, and future guests, <laughs> you know how to, like, to make my dad watch one. So, But the movie we're talking about today is, of course, a Stephen King adaptation and yet another John Carpenter movie as he solidifies his place on the best little horror house in Philly leaderboards. This is 1983's car killer, Christine. I am, I am happy that you have, in actuality, now gotten to the greatest horror movie ever made. <laughs> finally. Finally. It finally happened. We saved the actual best for number 100. It's funny how it worked out that way. There you go. Um, now, this is a movie that speaks to you not once but twice, because not only do you love Stephen King, but additionally, you're a big car guy as well. Um, I know that you love this, the Barrett-Jackson auctions, graveyard cars. We used to watch Overhauling together. Um, and so Christine being sort of a celebration of, quote, the American obsession with the muscle car is what the producer called it, uh, especially in the 50s by focusing on a car that returns the favor. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, talk a little bit about your love of just cars in general and, and why this movie speaks to you in that way. Well, not not just cars in general, but specifically Plymouth, you know, Chrysler Plymouth cars have always been my, my fascination. Right. Um, and my first true love, uh, although I have owned cars from every American mark that's out there, uh, my heart belongs to Mopar. Christine being a Plymouth holds a solid, solid standing there. Right. So, yeah. And the, the book itself came out on April 29th, 1983 day, right after my birthday, which is, I thought was funny. Um, but after working with Robert Kobritz on Salem's Lot, King had already sold him the rights to the movie beforehand. Uh, Kobritz wanted Carpenter to be the director from the word go, but it's only thanks to production delays on both Firestarter and Ninja that he was available. So that was incredibly lucky. And John brought along Bill Phillips to write the screenplay from King's manuscript. Um, one funny moment for Bill in the behind the scenes stuff that I was watching this morning is he was talking about how the New York Times labeled this the most foul-languaged movie in American cinema. But a few short months after, um, Brian De Palma's Scarface came out, where Pacino says fuck hundreds of times. Took the honors right away. Right. So, uh, so he was off the hook, he said. Which is actually funny, because so I have, I mean, I've seen the movie you know many times in the past, but I have watched it extensively and multiple times uh, recently in preparation for this. And that was one of the things I noticed, is that there was a lot of language <laughs> in this movie. Well, he really tries to get the nickname Shitter to stick. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, telling your parents uh, to go pound sand, you know, things like that. But it was it was a very surprising. A couple things when I went back and watched it all these times, I was like, hmm, I don't recall that. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, so I could see how it could win that title. Uh, Carpenter did make clear on the special features that one of the reasons that he took this gig was because he was coming off of The Thing, which had been lambasted at the box office, so he was desperate for work. That guy just loves to badmouth his own projects. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I didn't really care about it. But what does he know? Because he still managed to make the best horror movie ever made several times over now on this show. True. They made some interesting changes to the story for the movie. But most important and largest is to Christine herself. In the book, she's possessed by the spirit of Roland LeBay, the previous owner who, in fact, makes appearances in the book, like in physical, well, I guess, incorporeal form. But in this movie, uh, as we'll discuss in the amazing opening, we see that Christine has actually been this way since day one. And that's a huge shift. The reason for this is not only the typical, well, we got to cut some stuff out of a book to make it a movie, but also... The year before this movie, American Werewolf in London had come out, and so they felt that there wouldn't really be anything new to add to the companion who slowly decays after Griffin Dunn had knocked it out of the park. And so I think that this is a really smart move to eliminate that aspect of the story and really just focus on the relationship between Christine and Arnie instead of incorporating a third middle person there. True. So I'm interested to hear your your thoughts on the opening part of the movie because I had made several notes to, <laughs> to myself. So Hell yeah, hell yeah. Well, we'll get there very shortly. They got 24 cars in total, an assortment of Belvedere's and Savoy's due to both inaccuracies on King's part and limited inventory with a total run of less than 5,500 of the actual Plymouth Fury. Uh, and they cannibalized parts to make 17 functional ones that did different things, like hot rod engines for peel-out scenes, extra reinforced ones for banging into stuff, and they destroyed all but two of them, which is heartbreaking. (laughs) It's true. Um, One of these two was actually up for auction in January 2020, but the reserve wasn't met, so it didn't actually sell, stalling out at $275,000. You and I have been talking about how I need a new car. Maybe I'll reach out and see if he's ready to come down (laughs) $250,000 on it. (laughs) That is true. And as a side note, um, graveyard cars... They built a tribute to Christine with uh, one of the new Chrysler Helephant engines. Mm. So it's a thousand horsepower in a Plymouth Fury that looks just like Christine. Wow, that sounds pretty good. I'll take one. (laughs) (laughs) They also avoided big names in the cast because despite the studio asking for Brooke Shields and Scott Bayo, to them, Christine was the star and they didn't want to distract from that. Which I think, again, is a very smart move because Christine is so vibrant. You know, the, the red just pops so much on screen. Uh, and you get the, the bright green as well. The, the contrast between the two, it just works so well that when Christine is on screen, you want people looking at her and not at the actors, really. That is true. They did have a then unknown Kevin Bacon ready to do it. But he wound up politely, according to the producer, uh, excusing himself to do another movie one that we both love as well, Footloose. So <laughs> Another favorite. One of those ones that you have to, to put on no matter what point in the movie it's on when you come across it. That's right. Yeah, uh, I love Footloose. And I think it's so funny that we almost got Kevin Bacon in this instead of that. I, I can see him in the Arnie role. I think it would have been a good fit. I think that... Oh, he would have been Arnie uh, and not, and not uh, Dennis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, he would have been Arnie. They had John Stockwell, who plays Dennis, already booked before they had uh, the Arnie character even auditioning. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that would have been cool. Although, obviously, I would not sacrifice Footloose because 
uh, Keith Gordon, who is Arnie, does a spectacular job himself. Absolutely, so. without a doubt. Keith Gordon, like I said, was Arnie. He was doing mostly theater at the time, and he was so excited to get this kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character because he said it was atypical for younger actors to get this role with this kind of range. And he and John Carpenter hit it off right away. Um, John was very effusive in his praise for Keith in the behind-the-scenes stuff, talking about his physicality and the way that he made changes as the costume and personality changed as well. You know, as he becomes more entwined with the car, he starts to take on more of a 50s look himself with leather jackets and flared collars, but also his entire way of standing and his body language changes too. It's really great stuff, really solid performance. I I noticed that from the very beginning when when he was fully ensconced in his his nerdness to to when he, he progressed through the movie. Um, that it was sort of fascinating to see how he he changed how he moved and looked and his facial expressions. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's obvious stuff like the glasses coming off where like that people comment on, but just the, his whole way of interacting with people changes as well. And talking and you know yeah. his conversation with people, absolutely. Yeah. So John Stockwell, he plays Dennis. Uh, he said it was a fun challenge for him because he one wasn't a jock. And two, doesn't know anything about cars because he grew up in Manhattan. <laughs> um, I thought I thought he's really great in it, though. And I think that what the interesting quality that he brings to it, perhaps because he was not a jock, is he really feels like a classic floater. You know, the kind of person who would exist in like a weird middle ground between cliques in high school. You know, you had a few jocks who did theater as well. People who were in the band and also were on the soccer team. Uh, stuff like that. I, you know, I thought it was interesting, and, and I'm sort of sorry that we don't hear a little backstory of how Arnie and Dennis became friends, because it, it really is the classic, you know, jock takes care of nerd kind of story, protects yeah. him and, and everything. <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're obviously not next door neighbors or anything like that. So yeah. I was wondering, sadly, how uh, how they had become friends. And I would have liked to, have, you know, at least a, just a little line or two sure. to, to know how they they had become friends in the beginning. You know, I, I was considering this as well. I think that it is interesting that we never see Dennis's parents. And so I wonder if there is something in that angle where like maybe after school, Arnie like invited him over or something like his mom, Arnie's mom was like in charge of the after school program or something. And Uh, he had to be part of it. Arnie's mom is quite the character. She sure is. (laughs) She sure is. Christine Belford, she plays the mom, an amazing secondary antagonist. She is so... Uh, Bitchy? Yeah, well, hey, you said it, <laughs> not me. <laughs> She's a character, like you said. Right. Um, Alexandra Paul plays Lee. Uh, she said she was nervous because she wasn't a horror fan, so she didn't know anything about Stephen King or John Carpenter. But I think she does bring a unique, soft-spoken strength to the role. You know, she's really self-assured and aware of the changes happening, unlike many love interests in horror movies. She's got she's more capable and um, self-possessed, just like Christine is self-possessed. Yeah, right. <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton was specifically called up by Carpenter to play the detective, and he was psyched just to not be playing a villain for once, he said. Um, I love Harry Dean Stanton. That guy is the best. He did a good job in that role. Yep. Uh, and Robert Blossoms plays George LeBay, the weird old man who sells the car to Arnie, and he does such a great job of creating a sense of unease about the whole deal. Uh, I, you know, I thought it was interesting, and, and 
you and I had conversations about him off this podcast about right. George LeBay. And, you know, the first comment was, gee, another George gone bad. <laughs> but it was, you know, we had sort of different takes on his personality. Right. And you had said that, that he was, I, I forget what you said, creepy was what you yeah. had said. I, I, to me, he's creepy and he takes advantage of Arnie's fascination with the car by charging too much, which everyone acknowledges. And he says that it doesn't matter because he would have paid any price for it. And so that's why he charged too much. <laughs> yeah, and, and I took it as he was more just of a kind of cantankerous old man who, you know, lost, you know, his brother now to the car initially. And now his brother was stone cold dead. And, so sure is. And, you know, had this, this pile of scrap metal that keeps coming back and he uh, just wanted it gone. And, uh, you know, probably had he said you know, just take it off my hands, that would have been more of a red flag than if he had charged, you know, a price. And, you know, he did give Arnie a discount because he saw the gleam in his eye and knew that whatever he had charged, Arnie was going to pay no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I guess we will agree to disagree on George LeBay. There you go. <laughs> uh, either way, he was the seller of Christine. Absolutely. Because they had gotten the rights to this movie so early in the, like, progression of the story... Um, this movie was actually already shooting while the book was number one in the country, and it was released into theaters that December with quite the fervor behind it. The hardcover was still number 10, and the paperback was number one uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, the budget was between 8 and $10 million, not that much for an effects-heavy movie like this, but it was incredibly well-received by critics at the time. Time Magazine called it Carpenter's Best Since Halloween. And it did make $21 million at the box office, so that's a success in my book. For sure. I, even Old Raj liked it. Um, and in fact, this might be my favorite Ebert line I've seen yet, where he said, This car should have been recalled, all right. To hell. <laughs> Does that redeem Roger in your mind at all? That no, 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 no. <laughs> He's got a long way to go. But it's a step in the right direction. And ultimately, he says, It's utterly ridiculous, but I enjoyed it anyway. And of course, that is the case because it is a movie about a possessed car that kills people on its own. So utterly ridiculous is what I'm here for. There, there you go. And, and it, it's funny that he says that because that is a true statement. It is, yeah. it is utterly ridiculous. And in the outset of it, all the things that happened could never happen. Uh, right. Unless it was possessed by a demon. So true. So kudos to you, Raj. Uh-huh. I'm not ready to go that far. <laughs> uh, but let's get into the actual movie. First, I want to call out that it's a great loading screen, even, for the Blu-ray, because it's a photo of Christine as a junker, and slowly, as it loads, she becomes new. Oh, really? So that's a fun loading screen. You might have to let me borrow that. <laughs> okay. I'll bring it up with me next time. But this very first shot, you know, everyone talks about the full intro, which is amazing, and we'll get to it. But this very, very, very beginning is incredible just on its own, because you hear the engine quickly fire up as the Plymouth logo fades in. And then the name John Carpenter, and then Christine as the engine revs, and it's really simple, but it just really gets you going. So my my note on this is that anybody who has motor oil running in their veins hears that sound, and heads turn no matter where you are. If you're walking <laughs> through a parking lot, you hear the sound of a V8 roar to life. You have my attention, without a doubt. That's great. As you said, you know, I'm hooked right from. Minute one. Yeah. 
before there's any even real images on screen. It's incredible. Yep. The action starts for real with the first thing that they shot, uh, bad to the bone, playing over the assembly line production of the Furies in Detroit 1957. Uh, now, MTV had just started at the time of this movie filming, and so Bill and his girlfriend were watching when this song came on, and she was like, this is the song. And so he went into the production offices, and because there weren't, like, iPhones and stuff, he had to just sing it to them and be like, you should get this. Here's what I'm thinking for the music. Um, so that's a funny image. Well, I, you know, I thought what was interesting with that opening shot was that on the assembly line, you know, they have the row of cars. They're all very... Uh, simple white, you know, they could be any car. They could be taxi cabs. They could be someone's personal vehicle that they bought. They're all the same. They're all everything. And then Christine. That's right. Gleaming red, rolling down the assembly line. People are stopping to look at her. They're smiling in appreciation. They're fascinated by this car right from the get-go. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think it's interesting that the color of the other cars that is the actual color that Furies came in. Um, this red that Christine was it would have been, even in the book, a custom paint job. And so not, like what the cars that they bought all had to be painted to be red. And so the color of the other cars on the assembly line are the actual color that Furies came in, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I did, that was the only color you could get them in? Yeah, the 58, the 58 uh, Fury uh, only came in that. It was called like Sandstone, I, I think they called it. Did not know that. But yeah, so they cruise over the inspection points, and Christine stands out incredibly. It, the camera just luxuriates over the detail work, like the fins and the mirrors. It, it's really taking its time. The chrome. Oh, yeah. Acres of chrome on the car. <laughs> so. uh, her hood gets raised looking like fangs waiting to snap and that's exactly what happens to the guy who leaves his hand hanging out in the engine block uh, the victim gets pulled away and Christine plays I'ma tell you how it's gonna be on the radio <laughs> which is very very fun right. so that actually is with the second guy who gets in the car well right he, he, he another guy gets in and he ashes his cigar on the seat Right. And she takes him out while everyone else leaves, because that is, of course, no way to treat a lady. That's it. You know, when, when she's pledging her love to you, you do not tap an ash on her seat <laughs> so, and expect to survive. That's certainly not. Certainly not. We jump to Rockbridge, California, 1978, and Dennis rolls up with his, uh, to his friend Arnie's house to pick him up in his nice blue 1968 Charger. As Arnie's mother accuses his rock music of being noise pollution, much to ACDC's chagrin, and uh, his equivalent of toxic waste pouring out of wow. the windows. So here's a here's a, a side note. It was not ACDC that he was listening to. No, but I was making a reference to rock and roll and noise pollution. Oh, okay. I got it. Because what <laughs> he was actually listening to was Tanya Tucker's rendition of Not Fade Away. I had no idea. See, I told you I was channeling my inner George when I was doing my research. <laughs> So there you go. So that was I thought that was a great tie between the fifties and the seventies when they came up to that, and the having the same song playing was was a terrific tie through. Wow, definitely so. But between this look at his mom and the next few moments, we get a really good sense of Arnie right away as he comes out in his thick frame glasses and immediately spills the garbage all over the place. Right, pocket protector, the whole bit. <laughs> he he is the quintessential nerd. That's right. Just wait until he gets the snapped glasses and has to tape them back together. <laughs> um, but he also demonstrates both self-pity and overcompensatory misogyny during the drive to school with Dennis, who is trying to encourage him to lose his virginity during their senior year 
Dennis is, of course, much more popular as a member of the football team, and he is immediately hit on by a girl when they arrive at school while Arnie mocks her from behind. And struggles to open his locker. Absolutely so. <laughs> and another of Dennis's football pal comes up and he tells him about the new girl in school, Lee, who we see walking down the hall talking about trying to get involved with the yearbook. Um, some more examples of how smoothly things go for Dennis compared to Arnie include his knack for opening Arnie's tricky locker and Lee smiling at him as they walk past. This locker thing is really so funny, though, especially because the football pal is like, hey, you having trouble with your locker there? And he's like, uh, no. And he, like, <laughs> reaches out and, like, just touches it. Yeah, all of the fonts. Bunch. Exactly. <laughs> Arnie is getting bullied by Buddy Repperton in the auto shop when Dennis shows up to help rescue him. Buddy has a knife, though, and a bunch of cronies, including Stu Charno, who is Ted from Friday the 13th Part 2. Fun fact. They destroy Arnie's lunch and break his glasses, uh, while Dennis gets his balls squeezed by a crony. Moochie. <laughs> yes, that's right, Moochie. So so this scene had a little, uh, it was a little bit of a homecoming for me because I was at the risk of shattering your image of me. I was a shop kid when I was in high right. school. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite Buddy Repperton, but I was probably more, you know, one of the, the side cronies that, you know, hung out with the flannel shirts mm. and, the, you know, always had, you know, working on my car in the auto shop. And that was, that was my, my place of of hanging out you know i i certainly identify with that group of of people <laughs> <laughs> well and it must have felt just like me at home because they actually filmed it in a real high school shop and so it was uh all authentic baby that's it the shop teacher does arrive though and he confiscates the knife while buddy threatens arnie saying he's gonna fix him and make him wish he'd never been born which are classic 80s bully threats in my opinion you know i thought you know the, the last time i was watching i actually thought that buddy was sort of an evil vinnie barbarino <laughs> in, in a way with you know his, I see it. his mannerism and the long curly hair yeah so that was that was sort of my takeaway from buddy in that scene yeah i definitely see that and on the drive home that afternoon the two boys discuss how buddy in fact got expelled for this arnie makes dennis stop the car stop 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 Go back. That's right. Go back up the road so he can, quote, look at her. And now, based on his attitude up to this point, it is a reasonable assumption that he is talking about a classmate. Instead, however, he has spotted a for sale sign in front of a rusted up, dented, and even, behold, uh, red Plymouth Fury. It's Christine, and it's love at first sight for Arnie, despite Dennis calling her a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, I, I have bought cars in worse shape for more money. So, uh, so I, I understand the, the fascination with vehicles like that, that uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, again, to go back to that, that V8 sound, uh, I can think of two cars specifically that I have owned. As soon as they started, I heard the exhaust note. Didn't matter what else they looked like or, or <laughs> what was wrong with them. I was going to own that car. <laughs> and one of them turned out to be terrific. And one of them was the bane of my existence because it was possessed by a demon and killed the people in your high school <laughs> <laughs> no no this was this was actually uh living living here married and, and everything oh wow <laughs> uh and in fact you had written in it to daycare wow wow <laughs> um but george sees the way that arnie and christine connect and he sells her to him for 250 bucks 
but he does warn Arnie that he is selling this shithole and buying a condo, so no way to bring it back. You're on the hook, Arnie. His mom is furious when he returns home and says that he can't keep it there, so he heads over to Darnell's auto-wrecking and DIY garage. Darnell doesn't much care for Christine or Arnie, and I love this performance by Robert Prosky. Very fun and over-the-top in this good, blustery kind of way, where you can see that he is a nice guy deep down, but he has to keep up this image. Um, I, I really like this character a lot. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I thought it was it was good where he's... And I don't know if you had planned on, on touching on this or not, so I... Excuse me if I'm jumping ahead, but but when he and Dennis, you know, he he guides Arnie to stall twenty, and tells him to pull it in and shut it down, and and as he's walking to the stall with Dennis, he says, you know, if you sold him that car, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and uh, Dennis says, no, you know, I tried to talk him out of it, and he said, you should have tried harder. <laughs> and the the tie-in that I thought was interesting, which I, I didn't remember seeing, you know, years ago when I had watched it, uh, but, but which jumped out at me now was when he said, you know, I knew a guy that had a car like that and killed himself in it. It was older. And the guy was so mean that if you poured boiling water down his throat, he'd piss ice cubes, <laughs> which is basically almost word for word what George LeBay described his brother as. Well, because it was him. Right. That's what he was talking about. <laughs> I, I got it. But it's just funny. You know, it shows how the car has made its rounds mm-hmm. and, and people know. stands out to people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not confirmed until much later, but certainly that gives you the impression that they are one in the same. Foreshadowing. Uh, foreshadowing, indeed. <laughs> and uh, Arnie is allowed to keep it there on a probationary status. There's a real moment of insight into Arnie on the drive back where he describes what drew him to Christine. And specifically, it's the fact that he, quote, found something uglier than him. But he knows that he can fix her up, with the implication being that if there's hope for Christine, there is hope for him as well. That was a note I made as well. Three weeks go by, and Arnie has been putting in a ton of work on Christine. His outfit is starting to change as well. Darnell is impressed by Arnie's work, but not the car still, saying you can't polish a turd. (laughs) And I I, I thought it was interesting where he and and Pepper were talking, Darnell and Pepper were talking, and they said, you know, look at the the cockamamie way that he's working in that, you know, he has brand new windshield wipers on a broken windshield. You know, Pepper says, well, but you got to admit, he's got good hands. And Darnell says, good hands, lousy tasting cars. (laughs) Yeah, he's uh, he's smack talking Christine big time. Not difficult to predict what's going to happen to this guy. (laughs) But he essentially offers Arnie a job, saying that if he cleans up around the place, He'll throw him a few bucks, and Arnie can keep raiding the scrap heap for parts for Christine. Right, because that, that's his, you know, trying to put on his tough routine and says, you know, I didn't say you could rebuild your whole car out of my stuff. And, right. you know, <laughs> so that's his way of getting a little extra out of Arnie sure. for, for raiding the junk pile. And uh, Christine sings a love song to Arnie as he sits in the front while Darnell walks away, which is a very nice little moment for them. That's true. I have It is Pledging My Love by Johnny Ace. There you go. <laughs> Before my time. Uh it should be noted also that Christine exclusively plays 50s music, uh, which Lee complains about later. <laughs> Dennis gets turned down by Lee in the library when he asks her dancing. Uh, he also gets turned down by Arnie, who bails on movie plans to go run an errand for Darnell. So we see that the balance must always be there. And as Arnie rises, Dennis must fall. Right. right. <laughs> Having had the story of the previous owner's death confirmed by Arnie's mom, 
Dennis goes to confront George LeBay, who sold it to them, and he reveals even more background, that the daughter and the wife both died in the car as well, and when the owner finally got rid of it at his brother's insistence, the car, quote, showed up again a short time later. Comes back. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, that's creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Dennis breaks into the garage, and he notices that the odometer has rolled back. He also tries to open her door but it's locked. And he tries the locker trick, which I think is very funny that he like smacks the thing on it. Um, but her lights come on and she says, you keep on knocking, but you can't come in. Taunting, taunting Dennis. Uh, this one is little Richard, which I actually did know. <laughs> That's right. Um, and Dennis runs away in fear because it's very clear that this car is talking to him right. uh, at the football game. The next day, Arnie causes quite a stir as he pulls up in Christine, First, Buddy clocks them, and his cronies are like, oh, I know where Arnie keeps her. And uh, I think Moochie is, in fact, the one who says it. Right. Well, so, so the interesting thing, uh, just to go back to Dennis for one second. Sure. Uh, when Dennis comes to look at Christine, you know, she's not fully rebuilt yet. Right. She is, you know, her window still has a, a little spider crack in it, although it is nowhere near as big as it used to be. The, sh- the hood is bright and shiny, but the fenders are sort of still beat up and and not um but the next day at the football game she is pristine immaculate immaculate (laughs) concourse restoration (laughs) yeah i mean she looks spectacular it's it's no uh it's no wonder that she creates quite the stir as as she rolls up and uh in fact dennis is also distracted by this not only is buddy you know clocking them but also dennis is distracted in the middle of the game because who should get out from the passenger seat but lee on a date with arnie uh, he gets his clock cleaned on the play, re-injuring his leg while Arnie and Lee smooch. A true reversal of fortune for the two young men. Lee the unattainable. That's right. And Arnie the nerd who could never get anybody. <laughs> so When Arnie comes to visit Dennis in the hospital, he says the line that, uh, this is truly what I've brought you here to confront you about. Has it ever occurred to you that part of being a parent is trying to kill your kids? Uh, and why they would put such a ridiculous line in a movie, I, I can't even imagine. Mmm, <laughs> mm, good cover, good cover. <laughs> uh, that night on a date at the drive-in, Lee runs off mid-makeout because she's creeped out by the car and dislikes it, plus is jealous of how much time Arnie spends with her. But after much cajoling, she goes back, but the wiper blade gets messed up, so Arnie runs out to fix it. And while she's out, Christine's dash glows green, and the music starts to play, and the doors lock as Lee chokes on her burger. She did mention in the special features that she's a vegetarian, but didn't want to be a diva, and there weren't, like, veggie burgers everywhere in 1983. So she just takes a bite of bread, which you can actually see now that it was pointed out to me. I, like, went and watched it, and she it's clearly just bread. <laughs> no, that's fine. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Would you like to know the name of this song? Sure. Like, hit me with it. Robert Johnny's We Belong together wow there you go very appropriate (laughs) thankfully she is saved by another theater patron not arnie um, but she's done with christine and possibly done with arnie as well she's still unsure one thing i love and it's very visible here uh, is as arnie gets back in the car the way that the car is really treated like a character by not just the actors but the camera as well there are full-on reaction shots where they'll just cut to the grill or the dash or whatever and it's a really nice way to give her some personality and really feel like they're having a conversation. It's not just a guy talking at an inanimate object. The fact that it cuts to the front to get a, get a look at her face, right. in quotes, 
um, I think does a lot to, to create her as a character. So I am sure you'll, you'll touch on this, but after, you know, Arnie leaves Lee's house and he gets back into Christine, Christine is clearly upset Mm. and he goes to start her and she is stone cold dead. That's right. And he tries a couple of times and, you know, anybody who has a, ever had a dead battery knows that clicking sound Ooh. and you know he caresses her you also know the please please baby come on right everything's the same don't worry baby nothing has changed and that seems to be enough for christine because she roars to life and the That's dashboard right. comes up nice and bright green mm-hmm. and off they go off they go and he drops her off at the garage but unfortunately Buddy and his gang sneak into the garage when Christine gets dropped off, and they just have a grand old time smashing her up, specifically going for her radio when she taunts them, which I thought was uh, an interesting touch. Yes. uh, Keep on knocking. Same song for Dennis. Plays for Moochie when he comes in, he opens the door and starts to cut the seats. Uh, That's right. That that scene uh, broke my heart. Because, you know, beautiful cars and hammers don't go together. So true. And uh, nor does defecating on the dashboard. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't see that. <laughs> that would have been too much. No, that, that is true. Um, but the next morning, Arnie goes to get his wallet out of the car, and he and Lee walk into Darnell's. Um, truly heartbreaking to see the mangled body of the car, and the classic Carpenter synths kick in here stands out pretty significantly because of how modern it sounds compared to the 50s music that Christine has been playing. And I think that this is the first time where the music really stands out to me, uh, the Carpenter music, at least, the score. Arnie freaks out at Lee, saying that this is just what she wanted. And they talked about in the the behind-the-scenes stuff how it genuinely startled her because he was playing a much more low-key during rehearsals. And it really comes across so well. Like he, She looks so frightened when he wheels around, calling her a shitter and shoving her. She has seen, you know, we, we, we've all seen him progress and, you know, dressing better and becoming more self-assured. When he spins around, he's wide-eyed. He's, you know, he's horrified. And actually, as he's first surveying the damage, if you look at his hands, he's wringing his hands almost like a little child who, you know, someone broke his favorite toy or... or took away something that he loved dearly and he was sort of lost at the moment yeah so so yes the i could see how that would you know scare her or startle her absolutely he also blames his mom for this and his dad demands that he apologize and arnie freaks out once more grabbing his dad by the throat before giving some friendly cheek pats and, and, and heading out he tells christine that they can't hurt them if they work together and she reveals that she can repair herself. He says, okay, show me. And this absolutely breathtaking shot where her lights come on and illuminate him from the front. And there's the streaks of blue and green from the lens flare. I'm just like, this is movie making, baby. And if you if you listen to the music that comes up, you almost hear like an inhale as she takes a deep breath and writes herself on her tires mm-hmm. and begins to to rebuild herself in Christine fashion. That's right. This is so. an hour in. We're getting to really see this incredible, incredible scene. And she does show him. It's very fun to see the reversed footage as Christine gets back to good as new. They actually, smart move by them, 
flipped the camera upside down to film it so that when they developed it, they could keep it the first generation negative when they reversed it and help keep it looking more real. Oh, really? I, so I, thought, I, I, you know, I thought it was, it was funny. I mean, it's clearly just running it backwards right. when, when she's rebuilding. Um, but it's fun. It's, yeah, you know, for sure. This is this is utterly ridiculous, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Moochie is walking home when he hears some faint fifties music humming. Do wop at its finest. Oh man! And he looks behind a pillar to see Christine just waiting for him, lurking, and she slowly emerges. And the music turns to synths again as the lights snap on, and she goes chasing after, sprinting Moochie. That's you know that's such a simple yet effective effect or tool, mm-hmm. I guess, to use, where, you know, she sort of slowly idles into position <laughs> and gets ready like a, like a cat waiting to pounce, mm-hmm. and the lights come on, and it's off to the races. Yeah, it's real. it is simple, but it really works every single time. Yep. <laughs> it looks like he's going to be okay after running down a tight alley, and he just, like, whips out a knife at a car, <laughs> which I thought was funny. Well, so I, I wanted to bring something out to you that, that I don't know if you picked up on this or not. But as they're running through the alleys uh, to get to the loading dock where they end up, she is bouncing off the walls a little bit to to sort of tease him. And that sort of reminded me of the Warriors, Mm. where they're driving and clinking the the bottles. Warriors! (laughs) So it's like, moochie! (laughs) (laughs) That's right. She is, uh, I've, I've always said that she is, in fact... Uh, the leader of of that gang of cars. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and she, she he. It looks like he's going to be okay getting down to this loading dock. It's very tight, but Christine forces herself in, destroying the sides of the car in the process, but smushing Moochie, aka Goon Number One. So there you go. He's big time rip. The next day at school, though, Christine looks great as Arnie is approached by a detective with the state police, Rudolph Jenkins. He scopes out the car to investigate about the death, but he can't really do anything because there's no evidence of any misdoing. Obviously, whatever did this to Moochie could not have been Christine because she is in sparkling condition and there it would have been destroyed, obviously. Again. Indeed, again. Christine uh, gets into a scrape with Buddy Ripperton and she winds up smashing into his car. And as he evades her, she does it once more slams into uh, his car in a gas station, takes out another goon in the process, and causes gas to spill out all over the place, igniting Christine, who chases after Buddy in a flaming fury befitting the car's name. So that was actually a two-goon explosion. Wow. Before we even get to Repertin. That's right. You know, having Christine pull out of the exploding gas station fully engulfed (laughs) in flames, Oh man, it, like, it looks so good. Like, just you know, it is it is hell incarnate. You know, rolling down the road after Buddy, and she chases him slow too. Slow, like she just right. rolls I was just up. Say, it is it is like like she is just playing a you know, cat and mouse at this point because he is running and she is just rolling along, and the music shows how slow she's going, and she just catches up a little bit, and thump thump, and burning Buddy. On the road. Buddy, buddy, burning bright. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. She she chases him down the street. She taunts him until we finally hear the thud of her rolling over and leaves his flaming corpse right there in the street. This is a crazy stunt. It looks so good. They built the whole last gas station, and then when they went to explode it, the heat and lack of oxygen from the Inferno meant that the car would actually die because the engine couldn't 
keep running off with no oxygen there. And uh, they couldn't get the peel back that they wanted to do. So they actually had to do this stunt several times, little by little. Uh. Um, and a funny image, which they were talking about, is that stunt coordinator Terry Leonard is just chilling in Christine with a full-on firefighter suit. Like, not even a classic, like, stunt fire suit, mm-hmm. but, like, full-on firefighter with an oxygen mask and everything oh, no just kidding. hanging out in there. That's funny. <laughs> Christine rolls back into the shop. And the astonished owner makes a call to confirm that Arnie is, in fact, out and about in his Cadillac uh, and then gets his shotgun and approaches, scorching his hand on the handle. <laughs> because Christine is, is just smoldering. Sure. She, she pulls in a smoldering wreck of burnt paint and chrome. And, you know, you, you hear the interesting thing is that you, you can tell when Christine is sort of wounded. Because, you know, her engine starts to stumble a little bit and, mm-hmm. you know, body parts shake and you hear rattling. And as Christine pulls in and parks herself in her stall, smoking and smoldering, um, you hear all of that. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the sound design of this movie is really important and uh, it's very effectively done as well. And I think that it's the little things like that that, again, help to make Christine feel like a person and not just like a thing. Right. He finds nobody inside and he sits inside and feels her wheel when the music turns on again, calling him a phony and he quickly gets crushed to death against the wheel as Christine's chair comes forward. It's not phony. It's bony Maroney. Oh, I thought she said phony in no, there too. Bony wow. Maroney. So because he's such a big fat guy. Wow. And you know, wow. Just, uh, it all comes together. <laughs> so teasing him about his weight and saying that there's not no room for you when I bring this chair forward. Exactly. And you know, I, I like Darnell's line of, of when he walks up and points the shotgun and says, you know, okay, you know, time to come out. If I have to come in and get you, I'm going to get you and opens the door. Not the case. She, I am. There's nobody there. <laughs> the next morning, Arnie shows up with the car full of parts and uh, and he finds Harry Dean Stanton there investigating the death, and uh, as well as a freshly restored Christine. He shows up with, I should say, Darnell's car full of parts from the other day. That was what the errand that he was running. Uh, and he and he finds newly restored Christine. Lee meets up with Dennis to talk about Christine and her fears for Arnie and the way that he's changed, blaming the car. So can I just add one more interesting thing yeah. that I found interesting? Yeah, yeah is that when Junkins is questioning Arnie about it, uh, you know, he makes him give him the receipt because when he was investigating Christine the first time and asked about the paint, Arnie goes, oh, just threw the receipt out. (laughs) So this time he has the receipt to prove that he was out. Um, But, you know, know, Junkins tells Arnie about how they found Darnell in the seat, in the front seat with the shotgun. And Arnie walks over and with with Junkins next to him, but is looking straight at the car and says, why? No, not understanding that Darnell was also one of the shitters, <laughs> not quite in the same, the same way that, you know, Moochie and Buddy and all of them were, but right. Darnell was certainly trying to, to get in between them. Right. So, you know, the, the question in my mind, you know, the why was clearly directed at Christine and, but yet Junkins answers because he, Clearly, why would he be talking to to Christine? Of course. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really great performance that uh, Harry Dean Stanton is putting in there. It's it's doing a lot with a little. Yep. Dennis says that he's going to talk to Arnie that night at the family New Year's event, which again 
we never see Dennis's family. Why is he spending the night with uh, Arnie's family for New Year's? This seems to be a tradition that they have. You know, just kind of there is background, but it's very, very faint. Very sketchy. <laughs> yes. Very sketchy. And he says that if Arnie won't listen, that they will just have to destroy Christine. Dennis hops down to the car, still with an injured leg. He calls Christine a rust bucket, which Arnie doesn't like. After all, Christine's very sensitive. <laughs> they blaze down the highway faster and faster as Arnie drinks a Southern Cross beer. Good name for a beer uh, to drink in a demon car. <laughs> he also looks more and more strung out as Dennis pleads with him. Uh, he tells Dennis that love has a voracious appetite, eating everything, including family and friendships. He also terrifies Dennis by driving into oncoming traffic. Right. And and all through this, we see the odometer rolling backwards. Mmm, spooky. <laughs> the dialogue portions of this scene wound up being filmed in studio, but they did try and get it on the highway. Originally, the two of them were just in a shell of the car that was just straight up strapped to the front of a Mack truck that was going 90 miles an hour down the highway. And they said it was loud as hell, so they would have had to ADR the audio in after anyway. And they were terrified because the car that they were in, the shell, had no wheels. So if one bolt or something failed, the truck would just roll right oh, over them. Boy. <laughs> so they were like, our acting was terrible because we were just scared shitless the entire time. <laughs> um, so they took it to the studio and used actual lighting and audio. It's probably for the best. Probably. I, I, it certainly seemed to work out well. Uh, the next day, Dennis scratches Darnell's tonight into the hood of Christine, and he and Lee plan a trap for her. I really like this moment because you don't know if that's a message for Arnie or a message for Christine. Or it could be both. Or, it, in fact, it probably is. But th that, that ambiguity, I think, is really important and well done. Because Lee actually says to Dennis, how do we know Arnie will come? And Dennis says, Christine will. That's right. And... She certainly will. She certainly will. Christine comes tearing out of nowhere, trying to run over Lee, and they spring into action. Uh, Dennis goes into battle on a bulldozer, protecting Lee as she hides from the rampaging Christine. I love that her hood looks more like fangs than ever from the battle damage. Absolutely. This looks fantastic. There's actually, there was, you know, in the, in the setup for that, where they're discussing it and they get the bulldozer into the building, they're saying, okay... You know, now we wait for Christine to come in through the door, not realizing that Christine has been inside the entire time under <laughs> <laughs> underneath the pile of crap. Tricky, tricky Christine. And she then comes roaring out, starts to to do her attacking. Uh, there was a very funny prank that they talk about pulling on John Carpenter here. Uh, this was towards the end of shooting on uh, the production schedule. And Alexandra Paul, who plays Lee, has a twin. So what they did was they brought the twin on set, and there's photos of Carpenter, like, looking up at her like she got freaking body snatched. <laughs> like, like, who the hell is this lady? Um, very funny. And then Alexandra walked on set and said, you already fired me? <laughs> um, so that's a funny prank. Sure. Uh, Lee looks inside, and Arnie does indeed lunge out of Christine, which is something that I was not necessarily expecting the first time. He was he was actually, when he came crashing through the wall, he was ejected through the windshield. Sure does. Well, yes, lunge down. <laughs> yeah. And then jumps up to, to hug her. 
That's right. Uh, and he has been stabbed by a piece of glass on his way through the windshield. Arnie's death scene, I really like it. Uh, you know, he slowly runs his hands over her grill, and as his lights fade, so do hers. It's, it's really... Nothing. It's yeah. It's I mean, it really shows the 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 affection that he had for this this turd that he did indeed polish, mm-hmm. and and the the love that that he felt for her. Yeah, absolutely. Lee walks away and tells Dennis, but Christine springs back to life with the song of "I'll Always Love You." Yep. <laughs> and she tries to get Lee one last time. Lee sprints out of the way, and Dennis smashes Christine. Christine keeps trying, though, limping along as Dennis pins her back and starts climbing on top of her with the bulldozer, eventually crushing it completely, and we see it dropped after being compacted. George Thorogood of the Destroyers, who sings Bad to the Bone from the very beginning, uh, and the screenwriter were actually both in a cameo scene here where they're the ones who cube her. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. And they high-five each other. And the writer said that it was truly an abysmal performance, and so it got cut. Oh. So there you go, a little fun fact about George Thorogood and, uh, and the screenwriter being in there. Okay. And uh, right before we cut to black, in this compacted cube, we see the grill wiggle a little bit, and Bad to the Bone starts up once again. Comes back on. That's the good stuff. What I was going to say before was, as Dennis is crushing her uh, with the bulldozer, she is playing rock and roll will always be. It will never die. That's right. So. That is right. Yeah. I, I think that uh, it's a great ending to a great movie, but we're not here to say why this is just a great movie. Dad, we are here. In fact, to say why this is the best horror movie ever made. Well, as I said in the beginning, this is truly the greatest horror movie ever made. You have finally found it. I, I applaud you. Uh, the reason that it is the greatest horror movie ever made is it has something for everybody. It has doo-wop music. It has cars. It has vengeance. It has death. It has pretty girls. And and it shows that in the right hands, the power of love can transcend anything. Yeah, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is, as Ebert said utterly ridiculous, but also still utilizes these universal themes like love and jealousy to leverage that into something much, much bigger. It is ridiculous, but it is also incredibly relatable. And I think that every single person can see a little bit of themselves in Arnie or has at least felt like an Arnie at some point in their life. And, you know, the performances are great, especially considering that they were specifically going for unknown actors. Uh, I think that they do an admirable job. And to say nothing of Christine, you know, the car itself is an icon. And that's not easy to do for an inanimate thing to become such a well-known icon of horror. And you have John Carpenter killing it on the synths again, directing the hell out of it. The music is fun. The writing is fun. It's based off of a fun book by Stephen King, the master of horror, as many have called him. Uh, It's just got so much going for it. That's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Dad, I want to thank you so much. Uh, This was an absolute joy. 
not only was it fun to have you on the show, but you have you and mom have both been incredibly supportive of the show. Uh, so I want to make sure that I thank you on air in front of everyone. Um, and please, if you have anything to plug, <laughs> if, uh, or I, if you have nothing to plug, feel free to just shout out something that you have been enjoying lately. I, I think that uh, you should listen to this terrific podcast that we've been listening to, Best Little Horror House in Philly. Uh, the host is uh, quite a character in his own right, <laughs> and uh, that has been uh, a terrific thing. Um, it has been have to check it out. Yeah, <laughs> it has been my absolute pleasure to to be on here. Uh, we have listened from the start uh, and seen how the podcast has transformed in its own right, uh, much like Arnie, where mm. it started off struggling a little bit to find <laughs> its feet, and uh, now we are the self assured Arnie and mm. and understand the direction that we are going. Uh, thank Not you. Not gonna kill anyone though. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me on here uh, and to do this, uh, and it has been truly an honor. Absolutely, my pleasure. Um, yeah, this was great. You know, look, it's episode 100. You probably know the deal by now. Uh, check out the Twitter, Little Horror PHL. Check out the Patreon if you want even more of the show. Um, this has been great. Thanks, everyone, for listening for 100 episodes. It's really hard to believe that we've reached this point. Um, so thanks to everyone out there. Thanks, you know, everyone. You know, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't be happening without you. So uh, that's it. Bye, Dad. Bye. Bye, everyone. See you.